0: 451 4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206 842 3620. Eight four two seven four one zero, or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Are you a service member thinking about buying or selling your home? Whether you're active duty, a veteran, or a family member, you need a real estate professional who understands the unique challenges of the military. A Navy veteran, certified military relocation professional, prior Blue Angel and CEO of the Repoint Real Estate Group at Keller Williams Realty Puget Sound, Scott Lever specializes in helping military families relocate to and from the Kitsap Peninsula. Call him today at 206-486-4891. Or visit online at repoint.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Bystander Podcast. Now here's your host with the most, Tiny Tim. Hey, what's cracking, Phil? You found the Bystander Podcast. Today we have Moby, courtesy of Town Hall, recorded May 10th at Seattle's First Baptist Church. Moby is a singer, songwriter, musician, DJ, and photographer who has 15 albums to his name. He sits down and talks with KUOW's Ross Reynolds about fame, addiction, and his friendship with David Bowie. He even fits in a couple songs for us. Enjoy. There's a piano. Hello.
2: Oh. Mm. So, how many of you have read Porcelain? Just curious. Raise your hands. And how many of you have gotten to uh, that? I Fell Apart? Well, he'll be uh, signing them outside in the lobby. And I just want to say, I mentioned to him backstage, I've read both of them, and I was really impressed with them. They're wonderful books. They're honest. They're touching. They're really funny, so I wrote, recommend them to you. This month happens to mark the 20th anniversary of the release of Moby's iconic album, Play. Actually, it was 20 years ago on May 17th. He looked it up on Google. How many of you are fans of that album? Play, of course, won critical and popular acclaim, earned rave reviews in music publications, Spin awarded it a 9 out of 10. The album won the album of the year from the Village Voice Paz and Jop Critics Poll, which was sort of the creme de la creme of of critics at that day. It was the definition of cool. It was played everywhere on the radio, and every song from Play was licensed to commercials for everything from Nordstrom to American Express, so you heard that music all over the place. And Moby got to model for... uh, Calvin Klein <laughs> um, th- the new second memoir is out and as I mentioned it then it fell apart and it recounts what happened in the wake of the titanic success of play which was totally life-changing but I gotta ask you first of all I read a quote of you saying not that long ago one of my goals in life is to never go on tour again as long as I live and here you are on a book tour <laughs> hi everybody um, but this doesn't really
1: count <laughs> I mean, it is technically going on tour in that, like, I went to the airport, I flew here, I'm staying in a hotel, we're on a stage. I'm feeling a little bit odd that I'm wearing kind of... what I just realized might be construed as a slightly non-Christian shirt.
2: We're going to get to Maybe religion.
1: I'll just... <laughs> if I cover up this side. Um... So being on tour... Like, what I hate... And I don't want... It's not looking to complain in the interest of garnering sympathy. Because no... Whenever a touring musician or a well-known musician complains, no one should listen. Because, like, in the course of my life, I have had really shitty jobs. Being a touring musician is not a shitty job. Am I allowed to use bad words in a church? Yes. It's also an interesting thing... like. Like, how... Oh, it's a much longer conversation about, like, ethics versus morality. Like, why in the world would God be offended by the word shit? <laughs> to be very clear, assuming the existence of God, God created shit. Like, shit would be a miracle. Imagine if someone didn't... I mean, now I feel like I'm doing a George Carlin routine. But, like, <laughs> like without poop, like, no... Everyone would die. If you couldn't poop, you you'd live for, like, a day. Um, but... So touring, what it is, is especially, like in the beginning of touring, it was new. Also, I had never expected to have a career as a musician. I never expected to leave the United States. I never expected to stand on stage and play music for more than 10 people. So every aspect of touring was really novel and interesting. And then it became really fun and then really degenerate. But then... Starting about, like, ten years ago, around the time I got sober, it became very repetitive. And I was just, like, one of another... Like, there's so many middle-aged musicians who, like, keep going out, trying to, like, not look as old as you actually are. (laughs) Playing those songs that you wrote a long time ago. And, like... I just, if you can avoid doing that, why not? Like, the world is such a big, interesting, complicated place. Mm -hmm. Like, why do the same thing over and over and over again with diminishing results if you don't have to?
2: One of the things you talk about, I mean, you were an established musician before Play came out. You had hits, you were touring, you were appearing in many different places. But when Play came out... You were just about ready to throw in the towel. I think you said you were thinking about going to teach at a community college back in Connecticut. Why were you so unconfident at that point?
1: Well, in the early 90s, um, I got very involved in the rave scene. Um, I love one lone raver. LAUGHTER so I got involved in the rave scene. That was very exciting. In the mid-90s, I put out this album, Everything is Wrong. And like, I toured with the Chili Peppers and the Flaming Lips. And I did Lollapalooza. And I started drinking again. And I got a tattoo on my neck. And I was like, I'm a real musician. And then I put out this album, Animal Rights, which failed. I mean, like every way in which a record can fail, it failed. It was like, hardcore it, punk. It was like, I don't even, I, yeah. I mean, it was inspired by hardcore punk, but it was kind of like, dark, gothic, industrial, punk, metal. Mm -hmm. Just me screaming at the top of my lungs about things. And, no, well, okay, a few people liked it. And that wasn't, thank you, but what, what was odd at the time is three people told me they, and the record sold nothing, we were playing to like 20 people a night, I lost my record deal, my mom died of cancer, but Animal Rights had three fans. Bono, Axel Rose and Terrence Trent Darby. <laughs> Terrence Trent Darby sent me a fan letter on purple Terrence Trent Darby stationery telling me how much he liked the album Animal Rights. So no one else liked it, but those three did.
2: So you thought, so, it's over.
1: So that, I'd lost my record deal, and I made play, and when I made play, I was making it in my bedroom, and I was mainly using vocals that had been recorded... Forty or fifty years ago, and this was the time of like Eminem and the Backstreet Boys and Britney Spears and Limp Biscuit—like
2: these huge records. And I was making this weird little record and in I, my bedroom. I, I want to tell you, have you explain that? Like, how did you tumble to these Alan Lomax records that you put this accompaniment to that made this kind of magical Part combination?
1: Of it, it started in grammar school when I got my first Beatles record. And I sang along with the Beatles, and I thought I had a great voice. And then I tried out for the choir, and I was one of three people rejected. <laughs> and I realized I so I wanted to be a great singer, but I never was. And so, in the late '80s, early '90s, I realized that if I wanted to have vocals on my records, that I had to either work with other singers or sample vocals. And sampled vocals are interesting because, like, they have a, like a sonic quality that newly recorded vocals will never have. So I found some of those vocals. My friend Dimitri, he and his brother Gregor were music journalists, and someone had sent them a compendium of Alan Lomax recordings that they couldn't review because this was the late 90s. People wanted to read reviews of Limp Bizkit records. Yeah. And so they handed them off to me, like, here, maybe you can do something with them.
2: Um, I guess we have to get this out of the way because a lot that uh, has been written about the book touches on this as you touched on Donald Trump. Knob um, touching, what is that? And could you explain what happened with you and Donald Trump? Okay.
1: So, it was autumn of 2001, as far as I remember. I was very drunk at the time. And I was at a party for some product launch on Park Avenue, but uh, in the 20s. One of those big restaurants, you know, like, New York is just full of these product launch parties. And if you're an alcoholic who needs attention, you go to them because they have free alcohol and people who will be nice to you. And so I went to this after a crazy night already. So I ended up at this party, and my friends Lee and Dale were talking about this game that they had played in college called Knob Touch. And Knob Touch is very simple. You take your flaccid penis out of your pants, and you walk through a crowded room brushing up against people. It sounds creepy because it is. <laughs> and but to be fair, it's completely non-sexual. It's you brush up against young, old, male, female, it doesn't matter. The it's goal is just to like penis. it's a flaccid penis brushed up against the person and you get points for the number of people you, they and so they would drunkenly play this in college. And I was on a date, and my date thought this was horrifying and hysterical that they used to do this. And so the three of them challenged me to play knob-touch. And so the only person I have ever knob-touched is currently in the White House. (laughs) So I've only knob-touched one human being And that is that giant, bloated, racist, misogynist orange pig in the White House. Um, But it is, it is one of my, I I really deeply hope that he accuses me of me too. (laughs) It would just be like, oh, the the saddest, the poetic satisfaction. Hmm. Okay, so fingers crossed. Donald Trump accuses me of me tooing.
2: Okay, let's hope for that. You write a lot about your experiences growing up in Connecticut in the '70s with your mother. Your father had died. Uh, your mom was dating motorcycle gang members. You were very poor, barely scraping by. You added water to your milk and orange juice to make it last. And you were growing up in Darien, Connecticut. What if anyone knows that is an extremely wealthy place. So I'm kind of wondering, what was it like? How did it feel to be the poor kid in the rich town? And how do you think that kind of influenced your life later on?
1: Uh, I think it gave me a sense of shame and inadequacy that has never been touched by whatever changing circumstances I've experienced. You know, like it's almost, there's an epigenetic quality. Meaning like my DNA was formed growing up in a wealthy town but being on food stamps and welfare because everything about it there was shame but also constant concealing you know, like doing everything in my power when I went to school to seem like I fit in and I write about this in the book like if I had the flu growing up I would go to school once I got better and lie and say that I'd been on vacation in somewhere exotic like North Carolina um So it's all, everything was a lie. Because also we were poor, but my mom also, she was a wonderful smart woman, but she liked drugs, and she dated very dysfunctional people, like Hell's Angels, itinerant musicians, like just not great people. I mean, dating musicians generally is a terrible idea. But, um, so it's just the constant feeling less than, and a sense of shame, you know, which to a large extent I carry with me today
2: you also talk about how you were sexually abused over months by a man who was supposed to be taking care of you how did that traumatic incident kind of resonate in your life do you think
1: well it's inter- i mean not to try and distance myself from it too much but in a way there's like broadly speaking two types of trauma there's like episodic trauma and sustained almost like systemic trauma and in a way i feel like i was more altered by the sustained trauma you know, like, episodic trauma is horrible, you know, being sexually assaulted when you're three years old was terrible, but it ended, as opposed to, like, years and years and years of confusion, emotional abuse, like, I would say that that actually, I'm not looking for sympathy or pity, but I'm saying that I feel like I was formed more by, like, sustained trauma than quick episodic trauma.
2: You've gone from kind of unknown, struggling, you write excitedly about your first DJ gig in New York City, to being kind of fairly well-known, to being spectacularly well-known. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the good and bad parts of each of those kind of phases of fame you've been up and down with. The best, there are only two, maybe two and three good things
1: about fame. One is, and the most important thing about fame is being able to see fame up close. Because we, and I'm stating the obvious, we live in a culture that seems to glorify fame above all else. And it's very easy to glorify it until you experience it. And you realize how hollow it largely is. Tell that kid to shut up. (laughs) See, if you want instant comedy, make fun of a baby. I love babies. I'm sorry, baby, I didn't mean to use you as a comic foil. Um, so yeah, so seeing, I mean, like, and also meeting famous people. I, I don't want to disappoint you. Present company excluded, famous people are not that interesting. Um, they really aren't. Like, famous people tend to be just, like, insecure narcissists. Not all. Like, some are actually, like, mildly interesting and wonderful, but more often than not, like, fame is just, like, Like, everybody here is probably as smart and interesting as most well-known public figures without the sense of entitlement, you know? And so that's... And the other, but the most important... So one is being able to, like, experience fame and thus be able to dismiss it and move past it, but also to recognize that there's a a utility to it, which is drawing attention to issues that are important, Mm -hmm. You know, like, using a public platform as a way to address issues. Like, otherwise, I'd just be standing on a street corner screaming. But, like, if I'm able to, like, use an audience and, and some money as well to draw attention to issues, that's, that's a really practical utility for
2: fame. I mean, you have a more nuanced view of it now, but back in, in, when in 2002, you talked about loving being famous. You wrote that fame saved me, made me whole. Why did it make you whole? Um, I thought, and this
1: is, there's a danger here, because I don't want to narcissistically anthropomorphize the universe, although we are in a temple for that, but, um, sorry. Hi, Jesus. Um, And, uh, just making sure the ceiling isn't falling on my head. Um, So, yeah, so it's not to anthropomorphize the universe, but there's a, it seems like I'm on the receiving end of a very educational joke, which is at some point the universe, assuming it has, can be anthropomorphized, looked at me and said, okay, this is going to be a funny, interesting educational joke. We're going to take this broken person and give them everything they've ever wanted times a million. It's, I'm, I'm like the anti-Job. You know where instead of everything being taken away, everything was given to me. And my assumption was like, oh, fame, money, adulation, like all of my problems will now be fixed. Not surprisingly, that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. Um, But you can't fully know that until you've been through it, until you've expected your problems to be fixed by external stuff, by external validation, you probably will always work under the assumption that your problems can be fixed by those things. But then we look at, like, Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, Kurt Cobain, Ernest Hemingway, on, 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 on. Like, all people who thought, like, oh, I'm famous, things will get better. Rarely do they. Not, you, again,
2: I'm not complaining. But did you come to that realization? Fame was super important to you at one time, and obviously you've got more perspective on it now. Did it come at once? How did it happen?
1: It was the slow... Uh, slowly being willing to look at evidence. And, again, looking at Jesus up there, like nothing will get you in trouble faster than pointing out people's magical thinking. And as a species, we hate evidence. We really, like evidence, we, we love paradoxical magical thinking. You know, like we love and I'm guilty of this, like we love being able to say that we're good people even though we cheat and steal. You know, we love being able to say that we're animal lovers even though we eat animals. You know, it's these neurochemical paradoxes, like we hold on to these narratives, and as long as the narratives make us feel good, the criteria by which the narratives are judged is simply how they make us feel, not if they're consistent with each other. And not if the narrative is actually supported by evidence. I don't want to mean to sound too esoteric. So basically, all the evidence was mounting up in the 2000s.
2: That this isn't working.
1: That this wasn't working. But I had decided that I needed it to work. Yeah. So I was basically ignoring the evidence. I was ignoring my alcoholism, my drug addiction, my narcissism, my sickness, the friendships I was losing, my alienated family members ignoring all that i was ignoring the fact that i was not a nice person anymore and holding on to the dragon you know which was fame
2: you relay some kind of horrifying incidents you at one point you were at a party and you threw a knife at a friend and luckily his ring
1: that was not horrifying that was awesome
2: (laughs) because it hit his
1: ring instead of his heart it was not a very sharp knife (laughs) okay but it was (laughs) is my friend jonathan ames he's a writer as well yeah um, and he still is a little scared of me. It was this very chaotic party, and I didn't throw it at him out of anger. I threw it at him out of threw the knife at him out of love. I was like trying to express my enthusiasm. I was I had been smoking crystal meth, and I'd probably had like two bottles of vodka at this point, so I was not even human. And I was like Jonathan, I love you, and I threw a knife at him, and he held up his hand, and the knife bounced off his Princeton ring, and then he went and hid. <laughs> that was a good story that, I don't see that as bottoming out that's something I'm proud of <laughs>
2: <laughs> you, your, your musical career has so many different phases to it a uh, punk rocker a DJ your most recent stuff has been producing ambient music the kind of collage of old and new with play and 18 solo acoustic music as we're going to hear a little bit later Um, Did you lose anything as a musician from being so eclectic? At one point, you talk about Trent Reznor from The Nine Inch Nails as someone you kind of wish you were more like. You kind of stuck to the same thing. Well,
1: I think there are a couple of reasons why some musicians pick a genre and stay there. One is just pure enthusiasm for that genre, and the other is it certainly makes having a career a lot easier. You know, Metallica... I like Metallica a lot. They've always been Metallica. Like, they've never not sounded like Metallica. As a result, they can still play stadiums. In the course of my life, I've experimented with all these different musical genres. And it's certainly, over time, alienated people, confused people. Now, I'm fine with that. But there were times when that frustrated me. You know, I was like, oh, I, you know, there were times when I really wanted to have, like, a more consistent rock star career like a Trent Reznor or Metallica. Um,
2: I'm glad that I didn't, and I'm glad that I don't. Tell us about the music you're playing today, the gigs you play today. Like over here? Well, you you talked about you play for... You play benefits. Oh, yeah. Well,
1: so there's a word, and maybe someone here can help me out. We should invent a word. Um, And the word is... When something is not a job, but it's not a hobby. It's something that you love, but it's in between the two. And for me, that's what music is. Like, it's not my job. I, I give music away. Whatever money I make from music, I give to animal rights organizations. I hate touring. Most of the shows that I play are fundraisers. I don't want it to be my job. Like, in a way, I almost feel like music is too... like. The reward I get for music is the fact that I get to make music. I don't need more than that. Mm. So but it's so it's I mean technically it is professional, like money does come in from it, but I don't it's sacred it's more sacred to me if I don't think of it as something I can ever earn money from. And but it's not a hobby. So what what's what's that word? You passion. Avocation passion. is good, passion. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so um, those are all good. Yeah. So it's a, but those vocation is good. But vocation makes me think of like vocational school, which I went to for a little while, where like you learn metalwork.
2: So like, think about it, if you can. Okay, we, we've we've sort of talked about Jesus a little bit. So let's go to God. Um, you've got this great line called Don't Nobody Know My Troubles with God from Vera Hall's Trouble So Hard on on your song, Natural Blues. And you've had a complicated relationship with God. At one time, you taught Bible study as a kid. You once called yourself an undefined agnostic. You've said, I'm not a Christian. So I'm kind of curious where you're at with God now. Oh, boy.
1: (sighs) (laughs) That's a good question. But it's also... Do you guys watch Silicon Valley? So if you remember towards the end of the last season, um, Richard Hendricks, the head of Pied Piper, um, does the unforgivable thing and identifies someone as a Christian. And they're like, oh, you, can, you could call someone a pedophile. You're just not allowed to call them a Christian. And I thought that was funny because, like, I'm not a Christian in any conventional sense of the word, but, like, talking about God is the thing that we don't do, you know? Like, and... It's, but it's also what I spend most of my time thinking about. Mm-hmm. But, um, in fact, I had dinner recently with Sam Harris. Halfway through the dinner, I learned he's a well-known atheist. I thought he was just a nice guy from the Pacific Palisades. And I used the word God, and he bristled. And he was like, why would you use that word? And I was like, I was like so I look at the universe, and it's complicated beyond imagining. Like, I don't know how a single cell works, but somehow it does, and like there are immune systems, and you plant a seed and it turns into a 400 foot tall redwood, like that, that it's so complicated and I use the word God to describe that,
2: mm.
1: but I don't know what, I don't know who or what God is, I also don't know if God is, like maybe we die and nothing happens maybe we die and we meet an old white republican with a beard um, laughter who knows like it's sort of like in AA the third step of AA is turned our life and our will over to the care of God as we understood God and when I did that step I realized the God of my understanding is a God that I can never understand Mm -hmm. but what better use of a life than trying you know and especially because my understanding of God is like it's a force of healing it's a force of kindness it's a force of forgiveness it doesn't ascribe to denomination, it doesn't ascribe to dogma, it's just simply like basically a force of healing that works when we're not paying attention. And if we can, why not avail ourselves of that? You know, because certainly, whether you and some people be like, well, that's science, that's nature. I'm like, yeah, you're not wrong. Um, But I like the word God, and it's also much easier to be for me to be like interested in God, whoever God might be as opposed to humans. Because yeah. humans, were baffled and destructive. You know, like, it's real easy to dismiss humans. Because when humans aren't scared, they're ruining things. Granted, we're capable of other things as well, but, like, I look at, like, a, a seed that can be turned into a redwood, or I look at Sean Hannity. Who do you want to <laughs> learn more about? Like, the, 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 the redwood seed.
2: You've been through so many changes, um, religious to not religious to thinking a lot about God. Uh, But one thing that's been consistent in your life, as I'm able to determine, was being a vegan and caring about animals. It seems to be something that you stuck with for most of your entire life. Why do you think that's one constant in your life? Well,
1: I, like most people, when I was growing up, I had the paradox. And I, I did a TED Talk about this, so I'm sorry if it sounds like I'm repeating myself, but I had the paradox of loving animals and also loving Burger King. You know, like I loved our rescue animals and I loved pepperoni pizza. And then when I was 19, I finally realized like, oh, all animals have two eyes, a central nervous system, a rich emotional life, and a profound desire to avoid pain and suffering. And so I've been a vegan for 31 years. And... um, Thank you. And originally, originally my veganism was just based on A desire to not hurt or contribute to the suffering of animals. But over time, it's also been informed by the fact that you know animal agriculture is the third leading cause of climate change. Uh, It is 75% of antibiotic resistant is a result of animal agriculture. Obesity, cancer, heart disease, diabetes, at least 50% of these things come from animal agriculture. Harvard Medical said that 50% of healthcare spending is attributable to a Western diet. So I'm vegan for the animals, but also for the planet and for humans. You know, because it's just like, if you get rid of animal agriculture, a lot of our problems just go away. Like 90% of rainforest deforestation is because of animal agriculture. And not surprisingly, we subsidize it. Like it's this horrifying, insidious aspect of our government where, like, we pick the worst industries and we give our tax dollars to them. You know, so if you're an organic broccoli farmer, sorry, you don't get tax benefits. You're a tobacco farmer and you produce guns and pigs, here's tons of tax benefits. And it's, uh, where is there a country we can move to that's not insane and run by greedy, old, terrible people?
2: So Burger King has this meatless burger now. Have you tried it? What's your take on this whole meatless burger thing that's become quite popular? Uh, I
1: mean, I've tried the Impossible Burger. Yeah. I think it's okay. Yeah, I'm glad it exists. I'm glad that it's drawing attention to this issue. I'm glad that people can go to Taco Bell or Burger King and have a vegan option because it just continues the conversation. Like, my idea is just always move forward. And with this issue, it's just like constant pushing every day do what I can to just push and push and push at the hope that at some point we'll experience a paradigm shift and animals will no longer be used for human purposes.
2: Um, You've you've worked with so many amazing musicians, uh, David Bowie, Billy Idol, Daft Punk, Britney Spears, New Order, Public Enemy, Yoko Ono, Guns N' Roses, Soundgarden, Michael Jackson, which I did not realize... What stands out to you from those musicians you work with? Tell us a story about one of them that, beyond working with them, something that really stuck with you. Um,
1: Ah, boy. Something. Okay. This was a very cute one, and it's also sort of Seattle. It's very sad, but Seattle-based. In 1996, I went on tour with Soundgarden, and I did a remix for Soundgarden. And... I remember Chris Cornell and I were taking a ferry from Denmark to Sweden, and someone had played him the remix I did, and he was this lovely human being. And he came up to me, and he was like, Moby, I finally heard that remix that you did for us. What are you going to do with it? And I, had to, I'd be, I, was like, oh, I was like, you know, your record company paid me to do that. And he was like, so where are you going to release it? And he was like a child. I was like, no, you own it. It's yours. <laughs> and he was like, I was like, but you made it. I was like, but it's your song. And like, it was this very sweet, sweet moment with, like, he was such a lovely rock star. So that, that, that sort of stands out. Um, and then my favorite of all music hero stories involves heroes. Um, I became friends with David Bowie, and I, it's in the book. Um, thanks. And, and there, he lived across the street from me in New York. And one morning, he, we, were playing, we were going to be playing a fundraiser together, and he came over to my apartment, and he brought coffee. And if you ever want to experience something weird, open your door, and David Bowie's standing there holding coffee for you. <laughs> and, and we sat down on my couch, and I had this idea... And I worked up all my courage, and I said, so David, we're playing this fundraiser. What if we did an acoustic version of Heroes together? And I thought he was going to say, like, are you out of your mind? Like, Heroes is sacrosanct. Instead, he said, sure, let's try it. And so I sat on my couch on a Saturday morning with coffee that David Bowie had brought to me, and we played Heroes on acoustic guitar together. Just the two of us in my little sunny living room on Mott Street in New York, but... He was David Bowie in my living room playing the greatest... Well, Imagine's really good too, but one of the two greatest songs ever written. Um, I did have an interesting John Lennon story. Because I watched this movie last night about the making of Imagine, and it reminded me, I had played a show with Rufus Wainwright and Sean Lennon after 9-11, and Yoko was backstage, and before he went on stage, this was amazing, she handed me a T-shirt... And she said, here, you can wear this. And I was like, okay. She said, it was John's. And I was like, okay. I put it on, and she said, it hasn't been washed since he died. (laughs) I was like, like, (laughs) so this is what John Lennon smelled like? (laughs) So that was, of course, she took the T-shirt back when the show was over, but like... That was really interesting too.
2: Um, We're going to get to some of your questions in a moment with the microphones at either side of the stage. Uh, um, Then we're going to hear Moby play some music. But uh, before we get to that, uh, then it fell apart. Ends in 2008 with you going to an AA meeting and announcing, "I'm Moby and I'm an alcoholic." And the third volume of your biography autobiography is going to kind of continue that story and tell us what happened next. Um, Recovering from addiction can take many different tries. How is... Can you tell us a little bit about... Give us a preview and tell us a little bit about how yours worked.
1: Uh, Sobriety tends to work best when you're truly bottomed out. You know, like... You know, it's... that The first step is the only step that an addict has to do perfectly is when you admit that you're an addict. And you don't say, like, oh, I have a problem. You're like, no, I'm a full-blown addict and my life is a disaster. And until I got to that point, I wasn't willing to, like, do the work. You know, the work that comes from being bottomed out. You know, like, suicide attempts, depression, anxiety, sickness, alienated friends, alienated family members, control, just, like, everything was terribly wrong. But until I got to that point, I wasn't ready to give up the old things that weren't working and look for new things that were working.
2: Uh, Do people have questions for Moby? Please come to one of these microphones. We've got about 10 minutes or so if you'd like to follow up or ask something we haven't heard from yet. And by the way, I said questions, as in question, as opposed to long statements. Although I
1: will qualify that by saying if there's someone here who is insane and (laughs) you need to get up and just sort of vent and that's the difference between you like not going to a bell tower and shooting people or doing that? Like, by all means, like, if you need to vent, feel free to vent if that's the difference between sanity and illness.
2: Let's, let's start over here. What's your name and what's your question?
0: Hi, my name is Nipom, uh, and it's one question, but it's two parts. Um, what do you think of just, like, the new space, like, of disseminating electronic music, especially SoundCloud? Uh, like, what's your opinion on it, and who's exciting you in electronic music right now?
1: Was that the two questions or was that one? Oh, okay. So that's really, that was one question. Oh, okay, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> the medium and the people who are. Uh, I feel very ignorant regarding current producers because I haven't DJed in a while. So, I mean, I'm a 53 year old guy with a gray beard. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I hear that dance music is popular um, <laughs> with the young people. So, as far as. I mean, what's interesting, and I'm stating the obvious, is like every way in which music is produced, disseminated, has changed completely. The only thing that has not changed is the way in which people listen to it. What I mean is like we listen with two ears at home, in the car, wherever, and that emotional relationship that the individual has with the music hasn't changed. And that, so all the other stuff, I love it. Like, I love the sort of democratic chaos of... Digital production and digital distribution you know that anyone can make the music and anyone can distribute it um, as long as people prioritize making music that has integrity and emotional relevance
2: sir what 's your name and your question
0: uh, my name 's Dave, and uh, in the mid '90s a bunch of us drove out to uh, semi-rural Ohio to see you DJ um, right before Run DMC. We had no idea you were not happy, and I was wondering, like, was there any part of when you were doing rave tours that
1: you you enjoyed? Oh, I loved it. The actual, especially in the early 90s, it was so idyllic. Like, 91, 92, 93. All the songs were happy. It was great. It was really wonderful. That time was like that was around that was right before the album Play came out, and like I like my, my mom had just died of cancer. I was battling panic attacks. I was beginning to bottom out as an alcoholic, which only took another nine years. Um, I would lost my record deal, so like there was just a lot going on that was pretty dark. But I also I was loved. I remember that because I saw Daryl in the airport the next day. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I'm like standing in line at TSA with Daryl from Run-DMC. It,
0: it was a really great rave. I had a really great time. <laughs>
2: let's, uh, let's stay over here for a moment. Let's, let's, what's your name and your question? Oh, my name is Ashley, and I just want to know if when you rubbed up against Donald Trump, <laughs> did he know, or what was his reaction? He did not know. So he had no idea.
1: Um, I was going to say something really... Not, I was gonna, Probably like, you know, probably like how Stormy Daniels felt during the one night stand. Um, So, um, and if you're interested, there's a New Yorker article last week or this week about Michael Cohen. And you'll read this article and you're like, why is Michael Cohen going to prison for Donald Trump's crimes? Like, it's mind boggling. You read this, you're like what how is this guy in the white house he's a con man and a criminal but no when i rubbed my drunken sad compromised flaccid penis up against him it rubbed up against his suit jacket
2: yeah what's your name no it's
1: kind of like imagine like he's over here it's like yes sir sir.
0: my name is uh steve
1: by the way Miming rubbing a penis against the President of the United States in the church it 's just altogether possible that really we 're not here <laughs> that we 're actually just on mescaline in the desert and it 's twenty years ago okay
0: yeah, i don 't think I 'm on top of that question, so uh, my name's Steve Glenn. Um, I was interested in the, when you mentioned that you 're in, in your bedroom producing music, and when there 's that space where you don 't realize time and it 's not work, but it 's that joy that you're creating um you've kind of gone through the whole thing technology wise i remember when you could look at an album and you could see where to drop a vocal by the grooves and now it's to the point where you can look at on a screen how do you as a producer i mean is it just are you are you starting to look at the wave like when you just see a raw song how do you process that now? Yeah, People I mean, I actually,
1: I mean, you can read a waveform just visually. Um, but I try not... I know mean, a lot of producers and a lot of software platforms actually have um, an ability to turn off the screen. So, like, if you're mixing, if you're listening, you can hit a button and the screen goes black. So you're not, like, yeah. looking at LEDs and looking at waveforms. But still, like, ultimately... It's that emotional relationship to what's coming out of the speakers, and that's hopefully what drives most musicians and producers is, again, you know, the emotional reaction, not necessarily responding to a waveform.
2: Thank
0: you. Your name, sir. What's your question? Hey, Moby, I'm Brandon from Portland. How are you? Good. Reading your memoir, there's a, there's a section where you're in Old Saybrook, and you're visiting your mom's friend, Janet. And while the adults do their adult thing, you slip outside and you go explore this graveyard. And you find this winged angel covered in moss with some wild strawberries. And you, it seems like a really spiritual moment. Um, you climb a tree and you look out at Long Island Sound and see these shafts of light falling through the sky. I'm wondering, growing up with a single mom in the hippie era, would you say that influenced a sense of independence or self-sufficiency?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that when... Like, everyone gravit- like aligns themselves towards the things that create both, like, safety and well-being. Um, traditionally, that would be family, community, etc. But when you don't find comfort and happiness in traditional things, you have to look outside them. And for me, like, I loved my family and community was interesting, but I felt fear and shame around both things so that's why I look towards animals towards music, towards spirituality, towards other things and in a way it's almost like repurposing adversity because you know, growing up I would have loved to have belonged more, you know, to have been in a more traditional family to have belonged in my community more but now I'm glad that I was not ostracized but that I, did, that I didn't fit in in any sort of conventional way thank you Thanks.
2: yes your name and your question I'm Nick
0: Uh, Moby I'm a huge fan thanks for being here tonight and um, you know I just wanted to ask you a little bit further about uh, your recovery um, because I know quite a few people who've dealt with addiction in the past and most of them have to go to a place where they're homeless, broke dying, all those things to get recovered you know you're a millionaire you're famous, you're talented, people love you You don't have a lot of those reasons that a lot of people who are in the normal stratosphere of humanity that they need to get recovered, stay recovered. So was there a moment for you that changed everything or can you speak a little bit more on that? Yeah, it
1: wasn't one moment. Um, It was years and years. Do you know the boiling frog theory? Where like you put a frog in a pot of room temperature water and you raise the temperature and it will slowly boil to death without trying to get out. I hope no one has ever actually done that experiment, but that's what was happening with me pre sobriety. You know, like every morning, I, well, I was sleeping until four or five in the afternoon. Every time I woke up, I was disappointed that I was that I'd woken up. I had thought that finally I had had enough alcohol and drugs the night before to kill myself. So every morning was just this disappointment, like, oh, I'm still breathing. And, and then there were some active suicide attempts. My anxiety got so bad that I couldn't go on a date with someone. I couldn't, have, I couldn't be close to people. I was sick. My doctors were worried. I was lying to my doctors. Like, I remember at one point I was part of a study on panic attacks and I filled out this questionnaire, and the doc, in the questionnaire it said, how many drinks are you having a month? And I lied, and I said 40 or so. And he said, oh, 40 drinks a month, like you might be an alcoholic. And I was like, actually the number is closer to 300. I was having 10 or 15 drinks a night, so it's all that. But just like despair, anxiety, suicide attempts, misery, sickness. So that, that was my bottom
2: Yes, what's your name and your question?
1: Hi, um, I'm Jen, and I listen to the podcast Heavyweight, so I was very excited that you mentioned Gregor tonight. And I was curious if you ever gave him his CDs back or let him know where the storage facility is. The number of times I've been asked that question... <laughs> um, the truth is, I have no idea where the CDs are. And I, to be fair, I've never heard that podcast... But when we recorded the podcast, I actually told them that. I said, I don't know where they are. I think they left that out to create some drama. So, like... I, and also, I, I recently sold all of my records, all of my CDs, and gave the money to an animal rights group I work with. So, even if I had them, they're long gone. I'm tempted to go on Amazon and buy them and just say, Gregor, hey, here are the CDs.
2: Put it to bed, Bobby. Just do it.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: um, I want to I, have oh, time unfortunately.
1: To... I don't know if we have enough time for everybody's questions. We, we which I feel don't. terrible about. I, th- I was about.
2: thinking we would take one more, and then we could hear you play some music. Would people like hear Moby play? All right. Last question, sir.
0: Hey, so uh, I'm Eric. Uh, you touched on like working with New Order, and like sophomore year of um, my high school, you know, started driving, started listening to Joy Division. You know, pretty, pretty depressed, pretty sad time in my life. Um, but you know, I got into New Order, and ironically, that's what got me into you. So i was just like curious what your experience working with them was like.
1: Well, it was funny, because um, I went on tour with them in 2001. And similar to the David Bowie story, where like, I asked David Bowie if he wanted to play Heroes, I asked the guys from Joy Division if they wanted to play a Joy Division song with me. And they're very nice guys. They're really just like happy, lighthearted, lovely people. But I, same thing, I thought they were going to say, like, no way. And instead they were like, yeah, sure. So I had to teach them how to play a Joy Division song because they hadn't played it in a very long time. And while, after we played it, um, Hookie said two things. He said, you know, we haven't played this since Ian died. And he looked at me and he said, Moby, I think Ian would be proud. And I was like, oh, my God. Like this, <laughs> like, But when you have these encounters, like with David Bowie or New Order slash Joy Division, I had to pretend like, oh, this is normal. You know, like, sitting on my couch with David Bowie playing heroes. Like, it's normal. And, but you're always an inch away from being Wayne in Wayne's World when he meets Alice Cooper. Where you're just like, because these are not my equals. Like, I'm a fan. And I'm, there was never supposed to be a world where I was even pretending to be equals with these people. So it still seems wrong and confusing to me.
2: Um, Moby's going to be signing books a little bit later, but thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: I don't is the guitar plugged in is it coming? because i can can you hear it i can't um mr sound man or sound person man being a genderless term in this context um no i've, I've got the yeah the pedals because obviously the microphone is working correct any requests oh there's a there's a young person here what's your request I don't know if I'll be able to play it because I don't know too many songs oh we, we could oh you know what's funny I hate playing that song but but maybe, because, because you're wonderful, maybe I will play it anyway. Okay, if it's not good, blame him. I'm sorry. Okay, we'll play it. I hope I didn't make your son uncom- feel uncomfortable. Okay. Um, okay, so what's his name? Alexander so I'll play this for you and if it's bad I'm sorry cuz I wasn't planning on playing it. Is he okay? He looks asleep. <laughs> <laughs> growing in numbers. Growing in speed. I can't fight the future. And fight what I see People they come together People they fall apart No one can stop us now We are all made of stars Efforts of lovers Left in my mind in the reaches We'll see what we find Cause people they come together people they fall apart and No one can stop us now Cause we are all made of stars peace people that come together people that fall apart and no one can stop us now because we are all made of stars there yeah, are people that come together people that fall apart and no one can stop us now we are made of stars we are made of stars we all made of stars Cause we are made of stars we all made of stars Is that okay? Okay. Uh, I got a thumbs up. (laughs) Um, Any other requests? (laughs) Um, Oh, okay. Porcelain's nice. I'll try that. Um, I haven't played this in a long time, so same thing. If it's bad, blame Alexander. <laughs> Alexander, I'm kidding. Just FYI, you're great. <laughs> In my dreams, I'm dying all the time. And I wake, it's kaleidoscopic mind. I never meant to hurt you. I never meant to lie. This is goodbye This is goodbye Tell the truth You never wanted me Tell the truth You never wanted me So, so I guess, by the way, thank you all for coming out tonight. Um, it's very warm in here, isn't it? Sometimes I see you guys fanning yourselves. I feel like we should be at like a revival meeting in church. Um, yeah. I'd be such a terrible preacher. Um, with my upside down cross T-shirt. Um, okay, so I, I was going to play one more song and then because I think signing books might take a little while because there are a lot of people. So um, this is the song, someone over there requested it, that the title of the book is from. Thanks. Extreme ways are back again Extreme places I didn't know I broke everything new again Everything that I'd owned threw it out the windows, came along Extreme ways I know Will part the colors of my sea All perfect coloring Extreme ways that held me They held me out late at night Extreme places I had gone Never seen any light Dirty basements, dirty noise Dirty places coming through Extreme worlds alone Would you ever like it then? Oh, I would stand in line for this There's always room in life for this Oh, babe Oh, babe then it fell apart, it fell apart Oh babe, oh babe Then it fell apart, it fell apart Extreme sounds it told me, it held me out late at night Well I didn't have much to say, I didn't give up the light I close my eyes, I close myself, I close my world I'll never open up to anything that could get me at all I had to close down everything, I had to close down my mind Too many things would cut me, too much could make me blind I've seen so much in so many places So many heartaches, so many faces, so many dirty things You couldn't even believe I would stand in line for this There's always room in life for this Oh babe, oh babe Then it fell apart, it fell apart Oh babe, oh babe then it fell apart It fell apart Would you say my name was So say it then Would you say my name was Or say it then Well I know I can't Know I can't Well I know I can't find love Oh babe then, then it fell apart fell apart oh babe oh babe then it fell apart fell apart oh babe oh babe then it fell apart fell apart oh babe Oh babe, like it always does, always does